What's up, gentlemen? Before we begin, a friendly reminder that this podcast is not associated with any church, school, or calling body, and nothing we say here is meant to be perceived as the official doctrine, teaching, or theology of any church, school, or calling body. We're a bunch of dudes who love Jesus. We love talking about Jesus, and this is where we air out our thoughts, so don't take it as much more than that. I hope that this is edifying for you. Let's get started with the show. Okay, our guest today is Pastor Johnny Lehman. We're really excited to have Johnny on the show today. Um, I am particularly excited because he's written about something that I'm very passionate about. Um, Johnny is a recent graduate from Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, and he'll tell you a little bit more about that once we get into the show. Uh, But he wrote his seminary thesis, or his seminary thesis, I guess, on... um, uh, wild at heart and legalism that's involved. And, and I could, for a long time, I've been suggesting reading Wild at Heart, and I'm still not sure I'm going to take it off my reading list. But um, there's been something about it that's been challenging me and challenging my heart and my mind. I'm getting less and less comfortable with it. Um, and Johnny does a good job of digging into that, diving into that, and exploring what is it, uh, what is it that um, taints books like Wild at Heart, especially evangelical uh, masculinity movements. Uh, what is it that changes and shifts there um, and points the, the emphasis away from our relationship to our Heavenly Father and back to ourselves? Uh, he does a good job of putting that into words, and this conversation was a really good one. I was blessed to have it. And frankly, he put words to, uh, he finally put words to something that was been on my heart and my mind for quite a while. Um, actually, I, I'm not sure. Actually, I'm not sure if I would suggest Wild at Heart as as a book that I would have somebody read now that we've had this conversation. Um, I don't know. I think there's other books you could read first, um, and you definitely have to read with a grain of salt. Um, but we'll talk about all that in the show. Before we get started with the show, first of all, shout out to you guys who've been supporting us, uh, both with your prayers and with your money. Anybody who can make a donation, obviously, that's a huge blessing to us. We're all college kids at the moment, so uh, anything you can do to help us uh, carry that burden a little bit lighter. And frankly, the less we have to work, and uh, the more time we have to study and to podcast. So uh, if you want to be a part of what we're doing here at Gird Up or just help us um, on our path toward ministry, you can do all those things by donating to the Gird Up podcast. You can do that on www.girdup.com ministries.com um, or donate on Patreon. Um, there's all kinds of different ways to do that, and we thank you for being a blessing to us. Uh, the other two things is we're offering mentoring services now here at Gird Up. So if you're a young man who's looking to help somebody bring some order to the chaos and keep your life in order, and maybe you're managing a new relationship, maybe you're an athlete who just doesn't have enough hours in a day, uh, maybe you've had gone through some life changes, somebody died, somebody's sick, um, and you're just having a hard time managing it, or maybe there's absolutely nothing going on and you still just can't get your crap together. Well, we would love to help you with that. Um, we would love to get in the get in the ditch with you. Um, maybe not the ditch. Get in the trenches with you, and uh, help you organize your life, organize your finances, organize your time. Make sure that you're living in a way that glorifies your heavenly Father and sets you up for success in the long run, um, and one that's going to help you grow spiritually, mentally, and physically all at the same time. Um, and that's difficult to do a lot of times while you're in high school or college or even the first few years after college. So get a hold of us, go to the website, click Mentor Me, and we'd love to help you with that. If you're an older guy who's looking for life coaching, uh, we've got spiritual advisors that would love to help you out with that as well. Um, they are waiting and ready for anybody who wants to to, uh, to jump on board with that. So if you were looking for Gird Up Life Coaching, you can do that too on the website. Click Mentor Me. Shoot me a message what you'd like to do, um, what help you'd like to have, and we will do our best to provide that for you. 
Uh, the second thing we got to talk about is the collegiate men's retreat coming up. It's November 4th, nope, 12th to the 14th at Camp Phillip. Like I said, it's not a Camp Phillip uh, event, but we're having it at Camp Phillip. We're using it as a retreat center. Ah, I am so excited about it. I'm so excited to meet you guys, too, and spend some time with you. So make sure that you get signed up um, for the retreat so that we can uh, spend the weekend together talking about Jesus and digging into the word and um, diving into what it means to be a man after God's own heart, all of it. It's very exciting. It's very new. It's very fresh. And uh, I'm pumped to, to have it going on. We've got Pastor John Enter and a couple of the speakers, including myself. We're going to talk about legacy. We're going to talk about who God says we are. We're going to talk about um, uh, our lives and how we shape them moving forward and the role that our Heavenly Father plays in those. So um, it's going to be an awesome event, awesome food, awesome games, awesome time together. And I'm really looking forward to, to, to doing it. I'm I'm Obviously, I'm excited because I'm planning it, but I'm also just pumped to be able to attend an event like this. It's it's very, very exciting. So anyway, go sign up on the website. Last thing, let's pray, and then we'll get started with the show today with Johnny Lehman. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing Johnny and I together to have this conversation today. Thank you for uh, the blessing that uh, so many men's ministries are, uh, but also thank you for opening our eyes to see and to know the truth. We pray that you continue to do so. Um, as we have our conversation today, help us to be kind and fair to John Eldridge, but also uh, to recognize the truth and uh, to boldly proclaim the truth that sets us free uh, from the debt and the burden of sin. Um, in all things, Lord, we pray that our thoughts and our words glorify you, um, that we can be a blessing to the people around us. In your name we pray. Amen. You are listening to the Gird Up Podcast. This is the place where young men come to learn what it means to be a man after God's own heart. To gird up is an ancient way of preparing oneself for hard work or a battle ahead. And our work is to reclaim masculinity in the modern world and live out our calling as men of God. Here you will find a community of believers working hard to be the men that God created them to be. So roll up your sleeves, gentlemen, and gird up. It's time to get to work. Okay, my guest today is Pastor Johnny Lehman, a recent seminary grad, wrote an awesome paper, like I said in the intro here, wrote an awesome paper talking about really evangelical Christianity in general, but specifically um, a couple of the both academic, very popular academic, and uh, um, I don't know, what, what word would you use for the like John Eldridge kind of stuff? I don't know, more yeah, popular yeah. maybe? Um, I guess, yeah, contemporary, whatever, yeah. Yeah, but really cool. Uh, both exegesis and then exploration of those texts as well. So first of all, hello, Johnny. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Hey, Charlie. Thanks for reaching out about it. I'm I'm stoked to be on. Ah, I'm pumped to hear you talk about it. Um, first, before we get into that, though, why don't you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're doing? Yeah. So like you said in the intro, so I just graduated from the SEM. So I'm out here in Clarksville, Maryland. So just what, 45 minutes from D.C., about 20 minutes from Baltimore. So getting used to the East Coast, living out here, which is fun. Um, grew up in Wisconsin my whole life, uh, so I really didn't really know anything different besides the Midwest, besides a one-year um, internship down in Covington, Georgia, which is outside of Atlanta. But yeah, so born and raised Wells, uh, pastor's kid all the way through, and just really excited to be out here doing what I've kind of been thinking about doing for a long time, that's being a pastor and bringing that transforming grace into people's lives. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Cool. Um, what do you, uh, what is a, so there aren't a lot, obviously a lot of Wells churches. I mean, there are some, but not a ton of Wells churches out there. Right. Um, so does your ministry there look any different than it would here in the um, upper Midwest? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think just initially the culture here is so much different. I, you know, being here compared to the Midwest, at least where I grew up in the Midwest, where you didn't see a lot of cultural diversity here, I can walk into a giant grocery store and see probably 12 different cultures walking around me at all times. So it's been neat to be sort of in a multi-ethnic, just a lot of different thoughts and just world perspectives here than I had ever experienced before. Cool. Awesome. Uh, you said you grew up in Wisconsin. What part of Wisconsin did you grow up in? Janesville, Wisconsin. So good old southern Wisconsin right off the Illinois border. Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah. Cool. Well, to get into you know the conversation here, uh, obviously long before you wrote a paper about it at the seminary, uh, this must have been something on your heart and your mind. Um, at what point, I don't know, what, I, I guess even before you're necessarily reading books like Wild at Heart, I just want to talk to your, I don't like the term, but your masculine journey a little bit or something. <laughs> yes, yes, the masculine adventure, for sure. No, I'm glad you asked that. That's been kind of something I was thinking about since you asked me to be on. So, I would say for me, if it wasn't, you know, late grade school, for sure, early high school, I guess I always was kind of an introspective person. So I was that kid at 13 that was laying in bed at night, just thinking through everything I said in the course of the day, analyzing myself constantly and just trying to find anybody that I could really emulate my life off of. So, I mean, I was looking at my dad, looking at teachers, coaches, you name it, to try to give myself sort of this masculine framework to kind of, you know, evaluate myself on and went through high school and college still kind of struggling with that. Like, what does it take to be a man? Like, yeah, okay, the Bible talks about being selfless and things like that. But in our culture, in my life, like, how will I know I'm actually fitting what God's intentions are for me? Um, And we'll get to it, I'm sure, later on. But that's where Wild at Heart kind of hit me right in that sort of, I don't know if you want to call it that awkward or just that... um, yeah, just that part of my life where I didn't have a whole lot of answers and it seemed like it had the answers. And then as time went on, I realized it really wasn't what I was looking for. Right. Well, and that's a interesting, I very much feel the same way. And for a long time, I even suggested it. Like if you listen to the older podcasts, like I don't, I, I, I like to, there's a line in the book of Timothy that Paul talks to, uh, he's talking to Timothy. He says, you know, let the, oh, I'm going to misquote it here. Essentially, like let everybody see you grow, right? Um, let the congregation see you growing in your faith and in your ministry. And um, inspired by that, I have not removed anything that I've posted. Well, that might not be completely true. I have not removed pretty much anything <laughs> that I've posted over the years. And so a lot of that stuff from, especially when the podcast was newer, um, is still out there for the world. And I talked quite a bit about how much I enjoyed Wild the Heart, how deeply I drank of it, um, and how instrumental it was in me like starting to be intentional about being a man um and in many ways was a tremendous blessing and honestly, i probably wouldn't be doing what i'm doing now both studying for the pastorate and you know doing podcasts like this without having read the book drink deeply of it and having it have deeply impacted me um but the more times i've listened to it and read it and d- dug into the book itself and the message and everything um, the less, the more unsettling it's been, um, particularly in regards to the questions that he poses the, you know, do I have what it takes? And, um, I, uh, actually recently 
somebody sent me a video by Billy Allsbrooks, um, where he's talking about like having everything that you need inside of you. Um, and the idea that God has given me everything. So God made me with all the stuff that um, he needs for me to go do the things he's prepared for me to do inside me. And all I have to do is take hold of those things that are already inside me and go do what God has prepared me to do, which at like on a surface level is like, yeah, like he promises to give me everything that I need. Right. But then on self-examination, you go, yeah, I don't have that. <laughs> I ain't got that. I don't have the goods, man. I do not. Um, and, and, uh, as, as I've gotten older as a man and my relationships become more serious, both friendships, romantic relationships, even relationships with my family, you know, as they become more serious and become more mature and things like that, you start to realize, like, for me, it was my tremendous inadequacy. And I was just gripped by this. I don't even know, like, it was like anxiety, almost breakdown inducing, like, reality that I did not have the stuff in me that authors like Eldridge and others tell me I have in me. Um, and it took a very long time to start to recognize, as you pointed out, um, that th this is not of me. Like, this is just me simply letting go and letting the father lead and I'm following him and it's his love that's doing the work and it's s enslavement to him, like a positive, joyful, uh, chosen enslavement to him um, that then animates me to do the work that he has laid before me to do. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's fascinating. Just the stuff you brought up your story very much is similar to my story in the sense. So I, it was kind of the same reaction. So I read wild at heart the first time instantly, I got to start a blog. Like I was fired up. I just wrote basically <laughs> a 20 page, you know, manifesto of how much I love wild at heart. And I look back at that now and I'm like, Oh my goodness. Like, like you said, he does a great job. And I think this is the power in his writing is he hits men where they're at with the struggles we have. I think he articulates it incredibly well. So you feel sucked in like this guy gets it. He gets what I'm going through. And so naturally you're going to listen to it more. And I kind of ended up exactly where you were. All of a sudden, all this look within yourself, find the strength within, look at the fire you have. That will lead you to where you need to be. I realized, number one, I don't have that. He says I have it. I can't find it if I do. And number two, God's adventure is so incredible that it's going to be even beyond what I think I'm capable of. He's going to show me just how much he's capable. He's going to give me this adventure that's way better than being wild at heart, but rather just being free at heart to follow him. Even if I don't have what it takes within me, he's going to show me just how much he has what it takes to get me to where he wants to be. So I think his whole premise of like making it wild at heart, making it this adventure, I think God's premise for adventure which is so far beyond us is even more exciting, even more wild, if you will, than wild at heart even talks about. Yeah. What do you think it is that makes, um, makes this message that he's got so attractive to, to young men? Like, what is it that you talked about how he hits on that hits you right in the heart. Right. Um, and it's clearly hit a lot of men in the heart because it's 20 years later, I don't even maybe 25 years later. And it still is a best-selling book. Uh, especially in Christian circles. So what is it that he's hitting on that's so meaningful to men? Great question. I I think American men specifically, we have this feeling like we just don't have, I don't know if it's the purpose or just don't have the drive that at least our culture dictates we should have. And I think a lot of this 
really comes back to what the big, in my opinion, what the big epidemic is among masculinity is we just don't have good mentors and father figures, many of us in our lives. And so we start searching if we don't have that father figure or that mentor that can really help us figure out, okay, this is the man God's created you to be. We start looking for answers. So what Eldridge does is he kind of hits on the issues that we have. It's kind of an identity crisis in a way. I mean, he, he wants, he calls you to run into your heart. And if you look into your heart, you're going to find what drives you, what your passions are. So I think there's a lot of men, especially in America today, that are struggling with finding great role models, also finding other men that can actually reinvigorate and be with them through it too. I, I was reading an article, this is a couple of years ago from Men's Health Magazine, that this doctor actually said the biggest health challenge that he sees for American men over the next couple of decades is not even you know heart disease or obesity or anything like that. It's loneliness. Men do not have the relationships, those close relationships and friendships that are healthy. In fact, a lot of us feel alone. So I think Wild at Heart in a way plays on that by saying, hey, you don't need anybody else. If you find, you know, you look within, you find what you need and kind of go through life that way. So I think it's attractive and kind of a weird isolationist sort of a way, but men connect with it. Well, and to lean harder into that, he does. Um, it's it's so well masked that if you look closely, it almost looks like he is encouraging you to have other men around you. He talks right. um, extensively about his friend Brent um, and about, you know, like several different authors and men who have been an influence on him. But the actual message that he's giving is exactly that. Like you said, it's it's this isolationist idea of um, like a man on an island um, and a man on an island, even without God, oftentimes, and you lose that because like it does, it's not obvious because he talks about God a lot and he talks about other men. Um, but the actual message of what he's writing, the gist of it is essentially, you know, you've got the goods. Um, and so, you know, be introspective and you can't be introspective with the help of others. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Well, exactly. I think it's a very, you know, it, for good and for bad, it's that American streak of independence, you know, that that self-promotion of, okay, you know, I'm going to be self-sufficient. I'm going to go through life on my own. And so it does resonate in our culture when he talks about that. You know, we don't want to be those men that's sitting in cubicles or, you know, he brings up the Braveheart Mr. Rogers example. Who wants to be Mr. Rogers? You can be Braveheart. That's how you're made to be. And so I think men, especially in America, we get that and we think, oh, yeah, I want to be independent. I want to have that streak of wildness in me that just I do what I want. I'm in control. But in reality, the more we dive into that, we realize that we don't have that control. We don't have that independence. We're built for interdependency. And so we're actually going against the nature God has put into us by trying to be this independent individual that we really can't be. Well, and that's the really interesting, and that that was, I think, maybe the very first. Besides, the, in the in uh, the second half of the book, Eldridge does talk quite a bit about like spiritual warfare and the idea that like his wife's anxiety and dizzy spells were like a demon oppressing her and those kinds of things. And he gets into a little bit weird territory there as well. But besides that, I think that as far as theologically goes, the very first thing that um, became a bother to me was like, because I was reading it around the time Mr. Rogers died, right? Okay. And people are talking about Mr. Rogers' life and the way he did life and the very much like, you know, and then eventually they make the Tom Hanks movie about his life and everything. And I just remember thinking, 
well, why wouldn't I want to be Mr. Rogers? And, um, and it was also at the time where there were all kinds of rumors about like Mr. Rogers being like a former Marine or something like that, you know, right, and it's just right. like, which turned out not to be true, but there was just this question of like, I, I don't understand what you don't like about Mr. Rogers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just right. don't get it. And I also, I do get what you're saying about, um, uh, well, Braveheart. Oh, that's his name. I don't remember his name. Um, oh, Mel Gibson. Well, yeah, but but the the actual character. Oh, the, the actual guy, William I Wallace. I don't remember. Yeah, William Wallace. I do yeah. love what he's talking. Like, I love what you're talking about with William Wallace. I get it, but also William Wallace is not a man. He's he's similar to what you talked about in the first section of of the the paper. Was the idea that David so often was an unwilling. He was a warrior. But he was a, an unwilling warrior. He would rather not be at war. Right. He's desperately craving peace and rest. And William Wallace very much is that character, both in like the real life history of the the battles and wars going on, but then also in the movie, which I mean, it's historical fiction. Um, but both in reality and in the movie, he also is very much an unwilling warrior who is forced into a situation where he then has to go and fight. But he would far rather have been a farmer. <laughs> you right. know, that's what he wanted was to be a farmer. His every desire of his heart is simply to live a quiet life with his wife um, and raise a family. And because that's taken away from him, now he's forced into this battle. So even that contradicts itself in in Eldridge's writing. Um, but like that just struck me so heavily of I. But I do <laughs> want to be like Mr. Rogers. Um, and I don't know. Why do you yeah. think he dislikes Mr. Rogers so much? <laughs> you know, that's there's a couple really interesting things you said that just kind of the connections remain in my mind as you were talking. So just thinking about William Wallace, thinking about he brings up Gladiator a lot too, kind of that same sort of the same trope. You know, in both cases, here are two guys that, like you said, just wanted to retire, be a farmer, have their family life, be with their kids. You know, that was what they considered to be fulfillment. That's what they were looking forward to. And I think that to me, that's where a big theological issue comes in with Eldridge is he says men were built for the wilderness. So he makes this big, big thing about Adam was formed in the wild and then God took him into the garden, which to me, you see it in Genesis, like Adam does not feel whole. He doesn't feel like a man, quote unquote, until he meets Eve, until he's taken into that garden, until he has that family dynamic in his life. And so I think it almost counteracts, you know, what he's saying, where he uses Braveheart as this illustration or Gladiator, and in both cases, both of them would have given up that fight in a heartbeat if they could just be with their wife and kids and have that fulfilling life that they you know, were looking forward to their whole military career. But going back to the Mr. Rogers question, I think that he assumes that men in our culture really almost can relate to Mr. Rogers in a sad way in the sense that you know, men in, he kind of sees men in our culture as being lifeless as being stuck in the office as not living the adventure that they should have that god has placed into their life and mr rogers seems like this safe you know kind of effeminate maybe isn't the right word but kind of you know he's not that man's man the way that our culture looks at and to me that's what really was on my heart writing this whole paper was the men out there and i probably put myself in this camp too where I'm not 6'5", 300 pounds, just ripping with muscle. Like, I'm not, you know, that's not me. And I guess with Wild at Heart, you know, I, I counted it up. You know, two out of three references he makes are not to scripture, but to the culture, you know, different movie references or, 
you know, quoting from different like Robert Bly, who's a big, you know, kind of macho man figure. Um, and it just got me thinking, like, if you're making Mr. Rogers kind of the anti-type to what you consider a real man, it kind of go against this whole premise. Because like you said, Mr. Rogers shows really what true masculinity in a lot of ways is the selflessness. It's the willingness to even in a children's program to bring up some pretty tough topics and to show his his passion for mentoring kids, I think is, I don't know, all those things combined are masculine in and of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and what really, really, I think drives, I don't know. I, I do struggle with the term niceness, you know, yeah. um, I do. And I talk about that on a podcast fairly often is, is niceness is so often seen and whether or not this is how it's truly defined in like the dictionary or whatever, frankly, it doesn't matter that much because it's about perception and many men perceive niceness as passivity. Right. And so, right, um, especially right. in our culture where there are many men who are frankly, sinfully effeminate, like to the point of it being sinful. Um, yeah. while that is, there is very much reality. Um, and so I don't know, for me, I struggle with the niceness side of it, but it's not the niceness that defines, you know, uh, Mr. Rogers, especially if you know his background and know who he was and know who he was, uh, spiritually, like he's a, uh, fairly, he wasn't evangelical, but a fairly conservative, uh, Christian who was actively living out, um, the fruits of the spirit on his program every single day. And that's what you see. And that's what culture sees and said, Oh, he's nice. I said, well, he's not, he's, he's actually actively loving. He's actively being kind. He's actively being and teaching patience. He's actively being and teaching gentleness. He's actively being faithful. He's actively, you know, he's doing all the things. He's actively being joyful. He's doing all the things that the spirit does in men. How can we then condemn that? You know, right. Exactly. I mean, you could just see in his like you brought up in his lifestyle is such an other centered approach where in this case, you know, using self-centered in a not maybe a different sense. Now we typically think about it. But when we center our whole identity and purpose in ourselves, it was kind of what J.P. Kaler talked about, you know, with legalism, where it kind of sets aside the Christian life. What gives us the source of life, the spirit sets that aside and says, OK, I'm going to find that in my heart. And we see that selflessness, that other, other-centered heart by action. And so we see Mr. Rogers doing all the things you brought up, showing the fruits of the Spirit in a ton of different ways. And it also also reflects you know, where the source of his life was coming from. It wasn't coming from within. It was coming from the fact that he knew he had a bigger purpose outside of himself. There was, you know, there was a God, obviously, behind who he was and putting him in the position that he had been put in. And and so, yeah, like I think that's that's what really... I'm passionate, you know, about is just having men realize like you have a purpose that's so far beyond even what your own self can conceptualize. It's that other centered approach that obviously the Lord shows us in Jesus, but even more so we see in our own faith lives that, yeah, there's certain times where I don't want to be selfless. And yet the gospel motivates me to do something that inwardly I never would even think about doing. Um, And so, yeah, it's, it's hard because Mr. Rogers, if you really think about it, besides the caricature of, okay, he's wearing a sweater vest and, you know, he's up there talking to kids, um, realizing like you said the backstory of this man's life. I mean, it's, it's incredible. It really is. Yeah. And, and, and I kind of have two directions I want to go with that. Then the first is that the more you talk about um, like the like, struggling with, you know, not being a big brawny, hairy, you know, outdoorsman, you know, that Eldridge often talks about. It is ironic for two reasons. One, 
Eldridge, while he is like a climber and things like that, he's not the most masculine of men himself. Right. And it's a, I don't know. It, ironic isn't the right word, but you, you read some of his other writings and he talks about like, it's never enough for him. Like he's always chasing the next, it's not like an enjoyment of nature that he's like, that he's pursuing. He's always going on the next adventure and constantly seeking out more of his own soul. And he, it's never enough for him. Um, and you, I think, um, there's a, something about lions killing, a killing the lion, I think is, is another yeah. one of his books where he talks extensively right. about that. And, um, it, to him, it sounds like in his words, it almost sounds like an, like a, a joy to continually explore and, and know yourself better and better. Um, but what it actually is, is this thirst that cannot be quenched. And it made me think about C.S. Lewis once said, if I find in myself desires that cannot be satisfied in this world, it must mean that I am meant for another. Um, and, right. and the idea that none of those, like the things you, ha the desires you have in your heart, the longings you have in your heart, the, 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 I don't know what the word is, the, the things that are going on inside of you that cannot be solved by things on the earth. You know, just like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, you, you're not f going to find a solution here. The solution you're going to find is resignation to the one who's going to take you home. Um, and that, I think, I've, I, it took me a really long time to become uncomfortable enough with Wild at Heart in order to stop utilizing it and sharing it with other people. Because that is very much the man he describes is kind of who I am by nature, the way that God has piece me together like i am big strong and hairy i love being outdoors <laughs> i'm a rough and tumble guy i am very aggressive by nature um very bold and outspoken by nature um like you just go down the list of the things that eldridge seems to uh find great value in and those are things that i can't i can't even take credit for them it just are the way that god has put me together um and so it it emboldened me in many ways to live more boldly um, because I recognize those gifts as gifts. But it also then, um, I think, I don't remember which section you, you, you said this in, but essentially it leaves you either with an inflated self of, or sense of self where you're like, yep, I do have all this in me. Um, or it causes you to walk away empty saying, wow, yeah, I, I don't have the stuff. Like I don't have the goods. I don't have what it takes. Um, and I think like that, that's a huge danger for, um, it's just interesting that we're coming almost from opposite perspectives on that, where you almost immediately said, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't have it, <laughs> you know? And for me, it was just the opposite. It was, it was actually more difficult to come around, I think, because, uh, like I do have some of those things that he almost worships, um, in self. And I do have the desire to be in the wilderness like that. I've, since as long as I've had a car, I've been trying to escape off to a lake in a woods somewhere and find some quiet <laughs> time in nature. You know, I've very highly valued those things and enjoy them and even surround myself with other people who do. Um, and, and you say you can go out in the woods and look for answers, but the answers you find out in the woods are going to be based in what you already know of your father. You know, and the relationship we already have with your father, it's not going to be you looking into yourself and into your sinful heart and discovering new things about yourself and now coming back to God with answers that you can give him. It's about finding answers. It's about letting him answer the questions for you.
Oh yeah. I mean, you said it so well and it's, yeah, I just think of, you know, first John three twenty, and this is a verse that actually professor Pauschen kind of cued me into, and it's been super beneficial for me since, you know, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and knows everything, you know, it's, like you said, it, it could go both ways with how he writes. Either one, like you said, you look at yourself like, okay, like I checked this, you know, I got this down. I must be a real man. So it validates you. And yet, as you know, like there's going to be things that come up in life where it's like, oh man, like I, I'm not measuring up. And so all of a sudden you think you've reached, you know, that point and now you're kind of falling backwards thinking oh, I haven't reached it yet. Or like I can never get to that point. I mean, to be honest, because of this book, it got me into weightlifting. So I have to give John Eldridge that. He, uh, <laughs> he gave me that motivation to get into the gym. So that's that was a great lesson that came out of it. But it really reflects his own life story. And I, I watched an interview while I was doing the thesis, just where he talked about his life. And you know, he went through pretty much every Eastern religion you can imagine before he came to Christianity. I mean, he was into this, you know, the introspection, the looking within. I mean, that was just kind of what he liked to do. Then he became a member of Focus on the Family, and that was back when the Promise Keepers were huge. And so he saw the way that the Promise Keepers did things, that they're making masculinity basically an eight-step program to becoming a better you. And he didn't like that because he thought, you know, the heart's way more complex than that. Men are way more complex than that. And then he gives us Wild at Heart, which kind of goes against that. And yet at the same time, like you're bringing up, it kind of ends up exactly to where he was before, where, okay... Now, instead of looking at other people to decide what masculinity is, I got to figure it out for myself, which at first can seem freeing. But then as you go along, you realize you just become entrapped by your own heart, essentially. Yeah. Well, and that's that brings up something interesting, too, is um, the treatment of the desires and enthusiasms and things that we find in ourselves um, and say, if we condemn Eldridge's message that that is where the answer is, uh, which we do, um, then we also then have to find a new treatment for those for those things, right? So, what am I right. to do with what, or what is a man to do with those? You know, like the great enthusiasms to use uh, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, words. You know, the the great enthusiasms, the deep desires of my heart, you know, the, the desire a carpenter has to build the desire an outdoorsman has to hike, you know, the desire a hunter has for the pursuit, um, the desire a warrior has for battle. Like wh what are we to do with those things if they are not, uh, where I find my identity? Right. Oh, that's a great question. Well, Theodore Roosevelt is just a fascinating character with the muscular Christianity movement, which this paper, I barely touched on. I wish I could talk about it more. But yeah, I mean, so what do we do with those kind of innate desires that God puts in our heart? To me, and you brought it up at the beginning of the podcast, you know, that's where 1 Corinthians 7 really jumps into play. And this is where Luther kind of, he made his whole argument of the freedom of the Christian, you know, Christian is the same time a slave, but also a free man. And so you know, when you think about the God-given passions that we have, God's not saying you got to give those up. In fact, he's just saying, understand kind of your lifestyle, how you're going to use those, you know, live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has given you. So, you know, it's, it's this paradox of we're a slave to Christ. And yet through that slavery, that's the freedom that men get. So we have these drives, these purposes, these passions, these desires, these abilities, these talents, whatever. And God's saying, okay, yep, I gave those to you. Now you have the incredible opportunity by faith to say, Lord, 
you know, take my life and let it be, let me be a slave to you. Let me, you know, you take me where you need me to go. And it's through that journey that we actually find the freedom that we're looking for, albeit in a way that again, by logic and by human reason, we would have never expected. Yeah. Well, and, and also the recognition that um, if God did design me uh, and he did knit each of us together intimately and each one of us is unique, um, there is a recognition of the calling he will bring me to and the vocations he will give me will likely um, be intimately, intimately related to those gifts and the raw materials, if you will, maybe that he's placed yeah. in me. Um, but that also is not where I find identity. Um, and that's been a huge, that's always something that's annoyed me. I think I get this. Um, I get also get this attitude very much from my father um, of the, especially now that I'm studying to be a pastor, but even before when I was just a teacher um, and because of the, the cool, unique situations that we were in, a lot of times it would also like the people interacting with you also recognize, yes, you're a, a minister of the gospel. Um, so you're seen as you know a minister because you're not in necessarily Lutheran circles. They see you that way. Um, and right. so you, a lot of times I would do something um, and I would do something like just, I don't know how else to say it. So I'd do something out of, God's heart, if that makes sense, where yeah. like he's animating me to do something that, as you said earlier, it's not something that would have even occurred to me to do, but, um, you know, he lays it on my heart to do so. So I go out and do it. And then the response would be something to the effect of like, you know, oh, this is what you get when you got a, a pastor around or, you know, isn't it right. great to have, you know, somebody, uh, well, he's got to do that. He's a teacher, right? You know, that kind of a thing. And that always was offensive to me and continues to be offensive. I actually had a conversation with somebody pretty recently about this idea that that continues to be offensive to me, not because of I'm ashamed to be, you know, a minister of the gospel or ashamed to have a podcast or be doing ministry or whatever. I'm not ashamed of any of that. Um, that's not it at all. What it is, is that is not a part of my identity as I stand before the throne of God. And it's also not why I behave the way that I do. The reason I behave the way that I do is that I love my heavenly father and simply want to follow him. And so when the prompting of the spirit comes or when I see something um, and the, my you know, study of the word prompts me to do something, I'm going to do that. Not because it's my duty to do so as a pastor, as a minister or something, or, you know, as somebody doing ministry, um, I'm prompted to do so because of Christ in me. Um, and it almost diminishes that relationship between myself and my savior to say, Oh, I did that. Cause I'm a pastor. You know, I did that because I'm a minister. Um, and, and even in ministry, finding identity simply in like my identity is nothing more than what God says about me, you know, and, right. and, and keeping it that simple and never letting it go beyond that. And even condemning, and maybe I do it too boldly, but condemning any notion that it's anything other than that, that this is, I don't know. You understand where I'm, what I'm saying? Yeah, I think so. I mean, as you were talking, it kind of made me think of another C.S. Lewisism, if you will, of just, you know, he talked about humility and he said, you know, humility isn't thinking of yourself less. It's or it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's that, you know, self-forgetfulness where, you know, you're using the gifts God's given you. And you're not thinking about, okay, I'm good at this. So I'm doing it. You just do it. You know, I think that's, you know, as a pastor, like, 
one of the things that I keep thinking about is just, I want to get out of the way as much as I can. So Jesus can be seen, right? Like, I don't want, like you were saying, like, I don't want people to look at me. Okay. The only, the only reason you're in the word is because you're getting paid to do it. You know, they're always doing a podcast is because you want the glory that comes from it. Like, no, that's not at all. We would say it's in fact, we forget ourselves entirely in the work that we're doing. We forget about, you know, how we play a role in it. We just say, okay, Lord, use me. It's that self-divestment where all of a sudden we start to get fulfillment because we realize in those moments, it's not about us. We're getting a satisfaction that can only come from the Father. We're following that. And in the process, as we become more like him, we end up forgetting kind of more and more about who we used to be. And so it's like this neat re-identification process that especially men get to see is, you know, that's what I love about Ephesians 5 is just how countercultural Paul was to say, hey, be selfish to the point that you'd give up your own life for your wife, which in that culture would have been super unheard of. And God's still calling to do that, calling us to do that today. It's countercultural in the sense of almost counter self, where, yeah, yourself is going to be telling you, keep self-promoting, keep, you know, trying to be somebody that people look at and say, wow, you must be a real man. Wow, you are Christianity, your masculinity embodied. Instead, say, forget about that. Self-abandonment is the goal. Get rid of self, take up that cross, and let people, like you were saying, let's let's let people see Jesus who's living inside of us, and let Him get the glory. And if that's our one purpose, that's an incredible lifestyle. Yeah, I guess, and maybe that's the simpler way to say what I was trying to say is when people, I want people to, and granted, this isn't the best uh, assessment tool, maybe, but when people look at me, I don't want them to see like say like, wow, you know, what a good teacher. Wow, what a good podcaster! What a whatever. Yeah. I want to look at me and say, "Wow, that guy loves Jesus," <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> and, and I guess maybe that's where I'm coming from. On the like, it, it hurts my heart a little bit when people look at me and don't say that, even when it is still something that's encouraging and beneficial and good. Um, I it's almost a disappointment in myself. Of well, they saw me. They saw they saw the they saw the the pre seminary student um, before they saw the Jesus. You know, or they saw the podcaster yeah. before they saw the Jesus and they saw the Jesus. Um, but I want I want the Jesus to be so predominant and preeminent um, that that's what's on their minds when they walk away from me. And again, that's not a perfect assessment because you can't control what's happening in other people's minds and hearts um, or, you know, how they perceive you. But, um, yeah, just I, I don't know. That's the way that's the way I often think about it um, is, you know, like. My vocation is wonderful and great, and I very much enjoy it, um, and I thank God for it, but it is not who I am at its base. It could go away tomorrow, and I still would be the same man. Um, I would still be a man after God's own heart. I would still be a man who's actively pursuing him, and uh, that would not change no matter what I was doing, whether I was being a plumber or um, fighting wars or you know fixing roofs or bagging groceries, you know, that those things can all change without my identity changing. Right. Well, and I'm so glad that you touched on that because that you're kind of hitting on one of the big, big emphases that I had throughout writing this paper is just exactly what you're saying. I think no matter what subculture you find yourself in, we do have these ideas of, okay, this is what makes a man. Like you were saying, you know, for some, it's that guy in the roof that's using his hands and like, that's okay, that's masculinity. Or it's the guy in his office who's writing this incredible novel. I mean, that that's masculinity. You know, I think so often we limit it to the point where, okay, you know, it has to fit this certain criteria. And if it doesn't, 
I must not be a man when in reality, God has kind of created this incredible spectrum of how masculinity can be expressed where, yeah, like no matter what vocation you're in, you don't have to feel bad about that. In fact, you are being used to God's glory of showing another shade of what Christian masculinity can look like. It might not be what even your own culture recognizes. That doesn't mean that God's not recognizing it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that that also paints a cool picture, I think, of um, what a sanct or what sanctified living looks like too, you know, um, looking at your text here, you said, um, Paul gives both men and women, the goal for the, for respective sexes for husbands in particular, he instructs them to look at Christ. Men have always been, had the vast majority of power. Nevertheless, the Bible calls men to sacrifice their interests for the interests of others. And God calls a man not to sacrifice self when the necessity arises, but to be willingly give himself to serve God and his fellow human beings. Do you want to talk to that a little bit? Like my question, I know this is, this is far too, this is a terrible question because it's too broad, but <laughs> what does that look like? <laughs> right. Right. Like in a practical level, what does that look like? Yeah. Like bringing it down to like real life level. I mean, I think honestly, the way we see it is just the attitude that goes behind it. Like, I mean, that's what's so incredible. And that's, I mean, and you know this as well as I do, that's what makes Jesus and what makes our Lord so amazing is the fact that he chooses to show what he considers to be the utmost level of power by doing something that on our level seems very weak and seems very, you know, deflating and very, you know, just humble to just the max extent. And so in this, you know, the Bible calls men to kind of follow in that example where, we we sacrifice self not when we see our you know our buddy on the battlefield who's you know stuck in the warfare and we got to get him out of there it's not just in those situations but literally as we look at everything in life we're asking the question how can i sacrifice my own well-being and my own self for the benefit of that person that could be on you know a very small level of i see somebody struggling with their grocery bags coming out of the grocery store i have a place to get to that i really need to get to but I'm going to help that person out, even though it's going to cause me to be five minutes late. I'm willing to sacrifice, you know, that self-perception, that perception that other people have of me to help this person. So I guess it's just simply that. It's just the way that we look at every relationship and situation, asking that question, what is, what is God calling me to sacrifice in this moment? Is he calling me to sacrifice my reputation? Is he calling me to sacrifice my time? Is he calling me to sacrifice my body? You know, whatever it is. We're asking that question of, okay, I know if I lose my life for Jesus, I'm going to find it. If I, what the world sees is something that I'm losing or something that I'm in risk of losing, I know that God's going to give me back tenfold. And so I guess it's, yeah, it's more of a mentality. If we look at life through the lens of self-sacrifice, then all of a sudden we have a freedom to say, hey, it's not on me necessarily to find the answers. It's simply God is calling me to have that attitude, you know, influenced by the cross to say, even if I don't know the answer, I know that, the, that God's going to give me the heart that I need. If I keep looking to Jesus, looking at his heart, he's going to lead me to find exactly how I'm supposed to serve him in the exact perfect way that he wants me to serve him in. Well, and you hit on it just for a second there, but there's also the reality that um, my salvation isn't like my salvation is from death and condemnation, but it's also not just from death and condemnation. Right. Con not condensation, condemnation. Right, there right. you go. Um, and, uh, the, the understanding that if the burden is on me to find my own identity or to, um, you know, look into myself and figure out, you know, what I don't like, I just 
all the things, you know, as soon as I give up the attitude of simply following and just chasing after him. And again, another CS Lewisism, uh, further up and further into him, you know, mm-hmm. as soon as that is no longer my pursuit and my pursuit now becomes understanding my true heart in the Robert Bly, you know, setting, which I mean, honestly, if you've ever actually sat down and read Robert Bly, it's even more troubling right. than it would be quoted <laughs> by a Christian author. Um, like that's one of those books, so kind of like the Jack Donovan stuff, where yeah. oh yeah, sure, there's value there, but you finish reading it and you just go like, you know, well, there's a psalm that talks about a deer panting for living water. Why? Well, when you're done reading those books, it becomes like you're standing as a deer standing in the middle of Death Valley. <laughs> right. Like I just, I just need some Jesus by the time I'm done because there is no hope found in our nature as men. Now that we've been, I mean, it's the total depravity idea, right? Like there is no hope here in me, in my own heart, in my own, like my own identity, in my own core. I've been the entire book of Romans is an explanation of how I cannot find hope there and I should find hope in Christ instead. Uh, And the moment that I turn inward to look for meaning and identity and purpose, um, I give up maybe at the beginning, a very small portion, um, but very quickly will spire, spiral into um, the the light burden that my father wants me to carry. You know, he says, my, uh, let's see, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right. Well, I'm just picking up my burden again and saying like, nah, I'll carry this. I got this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I got it, bro. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. Why would you, why would you do that? Right. Um, but it's such an easy deception to fall into. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, it's a deception that we're all in danger of falling into at every moment of every day. You know, it's just that, yeah, the self constantly is telling you, telling us how we should live our lives. And it's constantly telling us we're self-sufficient when we're really not. And and to me, that's where the beauty of Christianity comes in. You know, it's kind of what Augustine was getting at, you know, that famous quote of just, you know, my soul is restless until it finds its rest in you. And I think what he's getting at is, you know, especially in our postmodern thought where, you know, masculinity becomes really challenging then because it's literally all on you to figure it out for yourself. And nobody else has a say in it where Christianity says there is an objective reality that no matter what you feel, no matter what's going on in that heart of yours, you can look to Jesus heart and say, that's who I am. You know, we can look to our baptism, an objective event that happened in our lives and say, I am baptized, which means I have this new identity, whether I feel it, whether I see it, whether I'll ever really experience it in this life, that doesn't matter. I have this objective truth that I can hold on to. And to me, that's where, you know, we touched on a little bit just with evangelicalism. Like that's the danger at times that it kind of has is there's still that element there of there's something in me that can do something for God. When we set that aside and say there's nothing we can do. Yeah, that's hopeless. But it's also freeing to realize that it's not on me. Christ did it. And so when it becomes, you know, masculinity enters the equation, it's not about me to prove myself to the people around me that I'm actually a man or that I fit this mentality or this stigma or whatever. It's all Jesus. And so it kind of frees us to say, I don't have to define myself anymore. I've been defined. And that's not a thing that makes us feel like we're, you know, pressured or enslaved. It's it's freeing. Those boundaries actually open us up to be free in every sense that God has for us. Yeah, you make me think about the story of Gideon. Um, and, uh, one of my favorite lines in scripture comes at the end of the story of Gideon, um, after they've defeated, you know, the, was Amalekites or whoever it was at the time, uh, or Philistines, 
one of the they, I don't know. There are plenty of them. <laughs> anyway, whoever the enemy was at the time, they've defeated them. Um, they've even like pursued them out of the land of Canaan, right? Um, and on their way back, Gideon and his army stop and they like essentially address the betrayal of several cities along the way who did not help them in their pursuit, right? Uh, and as he's pun- as he's punishing the uh, men of those cities, he asks one of them, you know, what kind of men were with me on the way, right? And he says, the, the man who he's actively punishing says, well, they were all men like you with the bearing of, like each one with the bearing of a prince, right? <laughs> and you take that and you juxtapose it against the Israelites at the beginning of the story, specifically Gideon at the beginning right. of the story. And the idea that like Gideon is the scum sucker at the bottom of the Israelite <laughs> barrel, right? I mean, he's the, he's the, the youngest member of the least respected clan and the least respected tribe of an enslaved people. And God comes to him and says, you know, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And he goes, ah, yeah, right. Right, <laughs> right. You know, and then, and then you, you juxtapose that against what was like two or three weeks later. Um, and now he is recognized even by his enemies as having the bearing and all the men with him are recognized as having the bearing of a prince. Um, and you said, well, what happened in between? And you can't say, well, cutting down the Asherah pole, he did that in the middle of the night. <laughs> like, right, he right. literally was hiding when he did that. Uh, fighting the battle, uh, he was terrified. And God makes it very clear that um, the, he's not the one that won the battle. So these things are not the things that changed Gideon. But if you look into the text, it says the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And now you see this shift and you see this change in Gideon's demeanor and in his leadership and the way he carries himself. And to me, like that there, I mean, you want to know why men in love with Jesus, like seem oftentimes to be very much masculine and very strong and very, and very attractive to the people around them. It's not because of some work they've done on themselves. It's because they've been filled with the spirit and the spirit is doing is making complete in them the work of salvation. And now they bear the marks of Christ. They bear the marks of their uh, the nature to for which they were created and has been lost. Um, But you're now seeing that sanctification in their lives of God doing that work in them and doing that. and, And you're starting to see, you know, the, the veil is getting pulled back a little bit and you see glimpses of what, um, it might have meant what it might have meant to have been created in the image of God, you know, um, and that's why Jesus, in his own personality, like his own person on Earth, says there was nothing about him that would attract you to him. So why are crowds of people following him? Because he's the one real man there, you know, um, and and that's something that Eldridge also also just frankly bastardizes is the identity of Jesus. Um, And, and he makes some really good points. And in truth, he might actually be closer to the truth than many Christian churches are. Like he speaks out very boldly against the, what he calls the cotton candy, Jesus, you know, the rainbows and unicorns, Jesus, which is very much not who Jesus is. Um, But both in his exegesis and it's just absolutely careless and even sometimes downright intentionally bad uh, treatment of scripture um, kind of goes way too far in the other direction. But this recognition of Jesus as 
the author and perfecter of our faith. And, and that, that also being the author and perfecter of what it is to be a man and a man made in God's image. Um, I don't know. I don't forgot where I was going with that, but. <laughs> oh, there's so much we could take off that. I mean, just, I mean, you really captured like the grand, you know, if you want to call it the grand masculine adventure of scripture, that's what it is. It's a common formula. He takes this person, this man who on the outward, according to his culture and you know, the people around him does not look anywhere near the guy that you would say, oh yeah, God's going to use him to be a mighty warrior. And he takes that man and makes him do these incredible things because like you said, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and all of a sudden that changes everything. Like God just, he loves to mess with us like that. You know, he loves to take, <laughs> you know, everything you think is going to happen, throw that up, burn it, destroy it and say, here, this is what's going to happen. It's completely just way far off anything we could imagine. But I, I'm glad, Charlie, you brought up the exegesis part because I think that I didn't realize just how, like you said, kind of the intentional I like the term you use, bastardizing in a sense of different pastors and how we looked at Jesus. Like until I got really to the sem and I started understanding, okay, like this is how we do exegesis. This is how you look at a passage. This is how you look at the context to see what's being taught here. And you're right. Like he blatantly will either cut passages short or he'll use passages in a way that's not at all in the context. And I think that just kind of drove, you know, something with me too. It's like, it's one thing to use a passage, but if you're not using it in the way that God intended it to be used, that's a problem, especially because a lot of the men who are going to be reading this book are searching for those answers and you're giving them counterfeit answers. They're only going to lead them to find more emptiness and a more of a feeling of loss. Yeah. Well, and I, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't add any more to it than that. Um, so for lack of a good uh, uh, segue here, one of the other things that um, isn't actually so much related to the uh, Wild at Heart, but you talked about it actually kind of extensively in your paper, um, especially when you're talking about commentaries on David. Um, we're talking about how we treat those examples of masculinity that we see in Scripture. Um, and you can't completely say, you know, well, these aren't masculine examples because they're men. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know? right. Um, but you also can't look at them and say, this is what men ought to be, ought to be, and how men ought to behave. Um, so, if Jesus is the one perfect example of um, what it means to be a a man made in God's image, right? He's the author and perfecter. That means that all the other men in Scripture and all the other stories we have about men, including David, a man after God's own heart, are examples of men who have fallen short of that. What then is the purpose of those stories of those men? And how then are we as Christians um, supposed to deal with uh, those stories? Oh, man. Yeah, that's that's a deep and just a fantastic <laughs> question. Oh, you came prepared, my friend. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So just looking at the masculinity of Jesus, if we start there, you know, to me, it's really neat how, you know, obviously the writers are inspired, but in their own ways, they give you these different just vantage points of the man that Jesus is. You know, it's this man who grew up as a carpenter, right? So, I mean, he's building houses. He can work with his hands. So you have that. But at the same time, you see so often his gentleness, his, you know, his peaceful strength that's there, um, you know, and yet at the same time, juxtaposed with that, you see that guy that Eldridge loves bringing up, the guy who's, you know, flipping tables and stuff, which... Yes, Jesus was willing to do that when, you know, the situation called for it. 
But I think in all of it, you see this one underlying just principle that's driving him. And the whole way through, and we already talked about this at length a lot already, but just this willingness to say, I could care less what people think of me. I could care less what even the disciples at times thought of him. My father's will tells me to do this, and so I'm going to do it. You know, my father's will is that I'm going to go to the cross. Even if I say, Lord, take this cup away from me, even in that moment in the garden, he's like, nope. I know even if my my human nature is saying this is going to be really hard, I know this is what the father wants from me, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to go through with it. So it's that self-sacrifice that keeps driving it through. And I think that's really the paradigm that we have to look at every other, you know, male in scripture through. David, the man after God's own heart, who clearly, you know, you look at the Psalms, I mean, this guy had an incredible connection with God. There's no doubt about it. This guy walked with him so much of his life. And yet, you know, we start seeing, I think the writer of Samuel purposely does this, where he makes it obvious the times where David was not following God's own heart. And in each case, it's David following his own heart. It's his, it's David looking out of the balcony, seeing something that he wants and taking it. It's David trying to save his own skin and so he kills a guy who is probably a really good friend of his, which is, you know, tragic. You know, it's this whole idea, again, that, you know, unfortunately, Wild at Heart so often brings out is it's this self-preservation versus self-sacrifice. We can preserve ourselves in a lot of ways that look good. David, you know, to the world around him, he didn't know this whole, you know, affair and all, you know, all that was going on. Look at this. And, wow, look at this king who's taking this widow in. And, you know, wow, this is amazing. What a great guy. When in reality, it was the opposite of that. He was only thinking about himself, objectifying Bathsheba, you know, all this other stuff. And so when you look at masculinity through Jesus's masculinity, it's that theme of self-sacrifice coming up again and again. I am not here to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And really, that can be the Christian man's creed in every moment of life. I'm not here to do what I want to do, but what my father has, you know, led me to do. Well, the other really unique thing I think about David is... David has to keep resetting <laughs> yeah. because like after Bathsheba, now his task is I've royally messed this up. How now do I, you know, take this weird, bizarre, blended family of mine and lead it as a man of God, you know? Yeah. Um, and now I've got another wife, you know, and uh, my first wife has essentially left me who like, was massively self-sacrificing for me, even in the face of her own and rebellion against her own father. Right. Um, and then I had another wife who was just an absolutely wonderful woman after God's heart. And that's why I married her. And now I bring in this other woman who's only here because she's hot, you know, right. and I've got all these different <laughs> right. dynamics, all these different dynamics. And now I have to reset and find a way then to, even despite of the position I've put myself in because of sin to now be, the man of the house and um, manage all those relationships in ways that glorify my heavenly father, which like, again, just puts even more of an emphasis on what you said of the self-sacrificing. There's no way for David to make this a, a, an arrangement that is glorifying to God of his own accord. The only way forward for David in this relationship or with his family or with his home is to just, simply start loving people the way that his father loves them and trust that the Lord's going to make it all work out. Cause there's no way out of this hole, you know? Right. And, and, and you don't see it in scripture either. You see for the rest of David's life after that, just all of the wicked and evil that results from this awful decision. Um, 
And yet, even in all of it, you do see David faithfully loving. Like you look at his treatment of Absalom, faithfully loving the people around him, even though one, they don't love him in return. And two, many of these, much of this chaos is of his own creation. And yet he still humbly accepts the responsibility and tries to deal with it in the most loving and gentle way possible, which just, I don't know. I never really thought about that with David before um, in regards to like, like we, we point at the big sins, right. But we don't think about like what daily life must have been like for right. David, um, especially once he's King. Um, it's not like things just got better. Um, and through all of that, it's not, it's not, it's not, uh, the scripture doesn't call David a man after God's own heart. Like, but while he was fighting Goliath and then running around the countryside, running away from Saul, that's the time when he was a man after God's own heart. Scripture looks at the whole of God's, of, of David's story and says, now that was a man after God's heart, um, which really shifts and changes that perspective. Right. Oh, entirely. And there's so many neat, you know, spinoffs we could go on what you just said i mean the one that i was instantly coming to my mind was just you know we do have to face those mistakes we made those mistakes where we haven't lived up to the masculinity god's put in front of us um and we some of some of those things we got to live with the rest of our lives david had to stare it in the face every day like you said with his kids with his wives and you see all the animosity and the just the struggles that he had there um, you know, that, that constant kind of battle we have to face as men for when we make the wrong decisions. Um, and yet, like you said, David, it almost drove David back to his savior even more where you see those Psalms where his heart is just, you know, spilling on the page. It brought him back to, okay, yeah, this is who I am. This is what it's about. You know, in those moments where I was running in those caves and I was, you know, this 12 year old or however old he was against this giant warrior and Goliath, the thought of himself wasn't on his mind. The thought was, I'm going to do everything I can to give God glory. I'm not going to kill Saul, even though he's peeing right in front of me. I could kill him right now. I'm not going to kill him like I, because God told me this isn't the way. And so I think in the times where David kind of had it his way, and he looks at it, okay, if I would have gone God's way, life would have been so much better. In a sense, it reoriented himself back to where he needed to be, back into his Savior's arms, back into that pursuit again of God's own heart. And so that's where like, I looked at it the way that David Kleins kind of looks at David as being the archetype towards, you know, Hebrew masculinity. And I think it's, it's not at all that. I think the writers of the Bible purposely put in these tragic accounts in David's life to kind of make us realize, yeah, David on the surface may seem to have all these qualities in and of himself that make him a man. But in reality, all it does is undermine that instead points us back to where David ultimately pointed his life back to. And that's the God who gave him everything, the God who gave him his purpose, the God who gave him his identity in the first place. So it's yeah, I mean, David is just a fascinating character all the way around. Yeah. Well, and Samson kind of fits there, too. You know, we get the the snapshots of Samson's life are overwhelmingly negative. And at the right. end of Samson's story, it says he served Israel as judge for 20 years and did so well, right. <laughs> you know, right. You go, yeah. Well, but the stories you gave us are like, if you add up all the days involved in those stories, it's like a month or two months. Like, um, so what happened to the other 20 years? <laughs> you know? um, and, and, and the idea, I think that points to your point of um, we have, these are, these are, given to us for a purpose and they were intentionally curated for us. So you can say whether that was by man or by God, um, 
we do know that it's inspired scripture and he tells us exactly what we need to hear. Whether or not at some point a writer intentionally sat down and said, all right, we need to give some people some good non-examples, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? um, no matter how that process happens, um, it's they're valuable. And it's also incredibly valuable to recognize that most of these men mentioned are men who were absolutely faithful to their heavenly father, absolutely yeah. followed him and served him. And even in and among their mistakes, like now we have the, now we have examples of, you know, like how to bounce back when I do sin because I am sinful, you know, how to um, turn a life of sin into a life of sacrifice and service, how to deal with it when other people sin against me, like all these different things that you don't necessarily get in the story of Jesus because Jesus is perfect. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's not a picture. Like you said, it's not an archetype. We can't look at it as an archetype and we shouldn't look at it as an archetype, but it doesn't make it any less useful for us as sinful men. Oh, for sure. And I think like, as you were talking, it kind of made me think about just how we think of ourselves as men. You know, a lot of men, actually all of us have that, you know, that drive for respect. We want to have respect. We want people to look at us and have that, you know, sort of a reverence sort of a thing. I mean, I think that's what Paul's getting at where he says, you know, love husbands, you know, love your wives and wives respect your husbands. It's kind of because he understands and God understands the drive he put in us. And yet, you know, you think of God's perspective, he sees all of time, like it's the eternal present. He's always there. And he looks at Samson or David and says, at the end of all this, he followed me. He was there. He, you know, he chased after my heart. He did exactly what I called him to do. Whereas we're so prone to look back at our lives and see all those mistakes and to dwell on those mistakes. And God kind of has to shake us and say, hey, look at this through my perspective. I see everything in this same time continuum. When I look at you, I see you standing with me in heaven one day, a perfect child of God, a perfect man of God. I think so often, not just, you know, in our circles and wells, but I think just in Christianity in general, and not just men, but just everybody, we have this guilt complex where we almost feel like I need to feel guilty all the time for what I've done. And yet, you know, God is saying here, hey, don't focus on those episodes. Yes, they're a part of your life, but see things the way I see them, where I see you as a perfect child of God. I see you as a man after my own heart. Think about that way. And we think it through that way. We think about, you know, what, who God has made us to be and called us to be. All of a sudden, those big episodes, I'm sure Dave at the end of his life could die in peace because I know where I stand. I know that God's with me. So I'm not going to dwell on the past. I'm going to keep looking at my Savior and just keep running with that pioneer and trailblazer of our faith. Oh, awesome, man. Dude, it's been such a great conversation. I'm so worth the time and the effort, brother. I appreciate it so much. <laughs> no, thank you, man, for working with me and being flexible. And yeah, I'm just glad we were able to have the conversation. This is one that I, as you can tell by what I wrote, it's something I'm super passionate about and just looking forward to all the conversations I can have with men that, uh, yeah, are looking for answers and Jesus has them. So awesome. And in that spirit, um, what's the best way for people listening to the podcast to get a hold of you? Yeah, so we have a Facebook page, so Christ Lutheran, Clarksville, Maryland. You'll see all my sermons there. We have a podcast as well. If you search Christ Lutheran, Maryland, um, you'll find a whole ton of stuff on Apple Podcasts, and we're trying to expand that platform a little bit more. Um, you can always reach me at pastor at ChristLutheran.net with any questions or comments or, yeah, just anything masculinity-related. I love talking about it. So, yeah, hit me up. Yeah, any social media or anything you want to share? Um, besides our Facebook page, I'll be working on my blog is under construction right now. I did have it up. It was called just a brother in Jesus. Um, but that's coming out in the near future. So once I get that ready to go, 
be on the lookout for that. And I'll share more of that on our Facebook page and our website as well. So awesome. Cool, Johnny. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it very much. And thanks for writing the paper too, man. It was it was a cool blessing to me. Like I said, I don't know if I said this on a podcast, but I said to you, this is a book that um, I drank deeply from in my younger or earlier years in, in, I guess, the pursuit of this Christian masculinity, right? And uh, um, the more I drank from it, the less, the more disconcerting it became, the less, the less the less it quenched my thirst. Um, and I couldn't really ever put a, I couldn't put words to what was going on uh, or what was bothering me. And you finally were able to do that. So appreciate it, man. Hey, I appreciate you saying that. And it was a, yeah, for sure. Your experience and mine are very much side by side. So I'm thankful that, uh, yeah, I got to do it. And we got to talk about it today. It was great. All right. Well, I'll put all those links Johnny mentioned down in the description below. Uh, thanks, Johnny, again for your time. And gentlemen, go be the man that God created you to be. We'll see you next time. On behalf of all those involved in producing, recording, and publishing this episode, thank you for listening to the Gird Up Podcast. We hope it helps you along your journey to be a man after God's own heart. Be sure to check out the Gird Up channel on YouTube. There you will find many podcast episodes just like this one, but you will also find exclusive video content geared at helping you be the man that God created you to be by introducing you to other godly men, teaching them how to behave, study, dress, act, eat, and live like a man of God, and you'll find devotions to help you grow in faith. Please consider supporting Gird Up Ministries by donating on Patreon, shopping in the online store at girdupministries.com, or by making a $5 cup of coffee donation at girdupministries.com. Those donations help us make more great content just like this for young men just like you. Make sure that you like, follow, friend, and subscribe to Gird Up and our guests on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Those links are in the description. And as always, we'll be praying for you on your journey. Blessings, men. Time to gird up and go be the man that God created you to be.